Pray with me now as we turn to God's word. Oh, Lord God, we praise you and thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that you would light the way forward for us. Amen. There are uh, so many new babies in our congregation. I don't know if you've noticed that. There's usually a collection of prams and strollers in the back corners of the room every week when we gather now. And it's an exciting time, of course. You get to see these new babies and the beaming new moms and dads. And, uh, you know, it is, it's one of the things that I enjoy about Facebook, actually, uh, that I get to see these children and babies growing. You know, if people are faithful to put pictures up, especially when they're maybe uh, family members and friends from far off places. It's a joy to see those babies grow. Uh, it's, and it's amazing. It is absolutely amazing to see a baby grow, isn't it? I don't know if you've noticed that, if, uh, if you've had babies. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's just amazing how their, their legs begin to stretch out and get a lot less squishier. They get stronger, their arms and hands lengthen and they start to grab things with great strength and their facial features uh, become more pronounced and then it, it becomes easier for us to, uh, to determine whether they look like mom or they look like dad or maybe they look like both. Um, then they're walking and then they're running and then the parents are chasing It seems like a literal miracle, in fact, to watch babies grow up so quickly into mature people. That's how God made them, of course. He made them to grow up into maturity. He he wired them for that. And in the same way, Christ's church, which he formed, which he birthed, in essence, is wired to grow up into maturity into him. As we read this passage this morning, it's going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. You can find this text in the bulletin, or if you've got your Bible with you, I encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians is in the New Testament. And keep your finger there at chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 16. Now, it's important to note that Paul has primarily been telling the Ephesians about what God has done to glorify himself in creating the church. He's saved sinners and rebels from diverse backgrounds, Jews and Gentiles, and he's bound them together in Christ. And then this body, this church, shows God's glory to the world. Follow along with me. As I read, beginning with verse 11, and he, that is Christ, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, 
We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This passage this morning can be summarized with this sentence. You might want to write this down if you're taking notes this morning. The church grows up in Christ when church members, equipped by God's word, do gospel-centered ministry together. Let me say that one more time. The church grows up in Christ when church members, equipped by God's word, do gospel-centered ministry together. And as we look down through this passage this morning, we're going to consider three things that the passage teaches us. The first is we're equipped for growth. Equipped for growth. The second is the way we grow. And the third is the goal of growth. Equipped for growth, the way we grow, and the goal of growth. First, let's consider equipped for growth. The passage begins immediately by telling us that Christ has given the church people with certain giftedness so that they can equip other members of the church for ministry together. And he singles out this list that he makes, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. And so, even though every Christian in the church has an equality and a unity together in the Lord, of course, all are rescued by his grace, there's no difference there between any of us in the church, yet God has given different roles in the church, in the work that he's given us to do. So I'll do ministry, I'll do works of service, but the ministry of these specific listed roles is an equipping ministry. Taking a closer look at this list of gift-based roles in the church, there's maybe two, the first two, that would stand out to you. And maybe you're asking yourself the question, are there apostles and prophets operating in our midst today in the church? Well, we, we need to comment on these gifts These first two, the apostles and the prophets. Let's take the apostles first. An apostle was someone selected directly by Jesus to be a special representative. And someone who had also seen the resurrected Lord Jesus. Twelve of the disciples had been handpicked by Jesus to be with him and to be given power and authority from him. And, And then Paul, of course, was selected by Jesus after his resurrection. And Paul himself was confirmed by the other apostles as an apostle. We can see as well that in the New Testament, the word apostle is used really just for someone who's sent. So there is a sense in which all of us who are Christians, all of who have repented and put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ are sent ourselves. We're apostled in a sense. We're, we're sent into the world to bear witness to him. But in the more special sense, this special selection by Jesus, we have to say that no, there are not still apostles operating in the church today. Not like that. There are people who do apostle-like things, of course. This morning, Dave Furman is in Fujira celebrating the 
opening the launch day of Emmanuel Church there, an evangelical church that we have played a large part in helping to, to uh, put there. And in many ways, um, uh, Steve, who is the pastor of the church, in launching it, is doing a very apostle-like thing. He's gone to a, a new place and started a new church. But Steve is not an eyewitness to the risen Christ. And nor is anyone else in our day. If anything, we can say that this verse is still true, that these apostles, people gifted with this particular role, have been given to us today in that we're studying Paul's words in the Scriptures. We're, we're reading Ephesians and we're studying the rest of the New Testament together. Paul and the other founding apostles are still a gift to Redeemer, aren't they? Through their inspired writings in the Bible. Well, the second gift role here is that of a prophet. And it's a little trickier to understand, I'll have to admit. A prophet, a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God. They speak God's words. And uh, if there were prophets in this sense today, then we would need to take their word as being equal with Scripture. And for scriptural reasons, we can't do that. The Scripture is the supreme authority in our midst. So we have to say that there are not prophets that operate today in that sense. Now earlier in Ephesians 2.20 and uh, chapter 3 verse 6, Paul has spoken of the apostles and the prophets as the foundation upon which the church is built. And you can't lay a foundation again. Some faithful Bible scholars would argue that the gift of prophecy ended when the apostles and prophets of that first century died. And so they say that there are no prophets now, even though there were some during Paul's day. But other scholars see another type of prophecy gift still in operation in the church, and and they describe it in various ways, these scholars do. Some would describe it as simply gifted Bible exposition, that that would be a description of prophecy in our day. Others would describe it as revelations that God gives a person uh, that should be shared with particular people in particular situations in life. These prophecies could be predicting something for the future or not. But even in this case, it's, it's argued that the prophecies need to be tested and weighed against Scripture. They're not infallible. Among members and leaders at Redeemer, there may be actually some differences of opinion amongst us about this particular gift of prophecy, but it's our practice not to elevate this gift to a former role in our services. We see regular, systematic, and thoughtful exposition of the Bible as much more important. But rather than focus more on what's less clear about these particular giftings in this list, We need to focus on what is clear, what binds them all together, and that is they all have in common teaching God's Word and helping others apply God's Word in some way. Teaching God's Word and helping uh, apply God's Word for the people in the church. That's what binds them together, and that's what equips Christians for ministry. We're equipped by knowing what's true about God and ourselves, and then living our lives in light of these truths, interacting with each other and the people in the world based on God's Word. Christian, 
I wonder what you think you need most to be able to do ministry. Are you tempted to think that you need spiritual gift tests or personality tests or special skills training more than you need a deeper understanding of God's words applied in your life? You know, these things aren't bad. Skills can be helpful. Knowing ourselves and our personality bents can be good for us. But they are never, never more important for ministry than knowing God's Word and applying it more deeply and thoroughly in our lives. Notice that I say, knowing and applying. You're not really equipped if you simply know more about the Bible. You need to act on what you know. So I ask you, do you hear a sermon and evaluate it more than you evaluate yourself? Now, here's a real-life description of how applying God's Word might look in the context of Redeemer Church. Someone hears Dave's teaching, for example, from last week, that everyone is made in the image of God, and therefore a person should be treated with dignity and honor. And they're convicted then that they look down on co-workers simply because they're from a different country or a different culture. This person repents. They begin praying that God would help them see the inherent dignity in their co-workers as people made in God's image. And, And then he prays that God would help him build relationships of love and respect with these co-workers. Opportunities come to show compassion to office mates. He even defends them against unfair criticism from others in the office. Friendships are formed. He gains a hearing for the gospel because of the new friendships that he's formed. Do you see how that works? Applying the teaching of God's Word that might be heard in the proclamation of God's Word in Redeemer Church on Friday mornings? God's Word rightly interpreted, explained, and applied equips us for growth in Him. Now, Redeemer has many of these types of word gifts being exercised in our congregation. But as many of you grow in your knowledge of God's word and application of it in your lives, it's our prayer that God would give us more and more people with these kinds of gifts. Some of you may be the ones that God will gift to our church as an evangelist or a shepherd and teacher. Men, You, especially, should desire to teach God's Word. Women as well. We need women teaching women in our church. Absolutely, without a doubt. But men, I want to especially encourage you. Fathers, be teaching God's Word in your family. That's where these gifts are often, we often begin to see them come out in a person. Aspire to have these gifts. Ask God for them, men. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31 says, Earnestly desire the higher gifts, which are the word gifts. So God equips all Christians for growth in His church through the people with these kinds of teaching gifts. Now the second thing that we're considering about the passage this morning and what it teaches is the way we grow. First was that we're equipped for growth, but secondly, the way we grow. 
The passage describes the way the church grows with a number of different terms and phrases. In verse 12 it says, The saints do the work of ministry for the building up of the body. The work of ministry or works of service results in the building up of the church. In verse 15, Paul speaks about speaking the truth in love. And in 16 he says, When each part is working properly. When each part of the body, that is, is working properly, then the body grows. These phrases teach us the way that we grow as a church. We can say first, at least, that we grow through gospel-motivated acts of service and speech. Gospel-motivated acts of service and speech. Acts of service because ministry is service, or it means aid, aiding another person. And speech because he tells us directly to speak the truth in love. So it's not enough for us to just serve people by physical, physical service. It's more that we need to, in addition to that, speak the truth in love to them. What does Paul mean by that? Speak the truth in love. Does it mean that I I just look for people in the congregation and I tell them what I'm thinking? Gently? You know? Something like, Chris, uh, I mean this in love, but uh, that haircut just isn't doing much for you. Okay. No, I, I don't think that's what it means. The phrase, of course, is set up as a contrast to the sentence before it, which says, by human cunning... And by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So that describes lies that are spoken for selfish gain. We in the church, on the other hand, interact by speaking truths of God, not lies, truths of God for loving and selfless purposes. So the truth in this verse refers primarily to gospel and biblical truths. Or how those are applied to ourselves. So what's being described here is something that we often call discipleship here at Redeemer Church. Or disciple making as well. You'll you'll hear us talk about that a lot if you're new. (laughs) Discipleship is the process of growing to be more like Christ. And disciple making is obvious. It's all about the fact that disciples of Jesus necessarily make other disciples. They replicate themselves. And when you think of discipleship or disciple-making, many of you may think of a more mature Christian getting together with a less mature Christian for a structured time of maybe going through a book of the Bible or praying together for special purposes or special needs that are going on. And, and the Bible has, has lots of examples of that. Paul and Timothy are one example. Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos are another example. And there's even more. And that is fantastic, actually. You should desire that. And many of you should be intentionally pursuing those kinds of relationships that are structured and involve in some way a master and a student or a mentor and a mentoree. But discipleship shouldn't happen only in that way. Discipleship can happen in lots of different ways. Discipleship happens when we talk about the sermon around the lunch table together after the morning service. And and young and old are sharing what struck them about it and what they remember about it. And they're each encouraged by what the other is sharing and what they saw or heard. 
And discipleship happens when a, a brand new Christian comes to me, Elder Brian, <laughs> and says, I want to tell you what I've been learning in the book of Romans. And he shares it with me. And wow, I am encouraged. I'm reminded of the truths of Romans. I do not get tired of those truths. And I need to hear them from people like young Christians in our midst. I'm built up in Christ in that way. That's discipleship. Discipleship's happening when several single adults in our church make dinner together and and over it they're talking about their week and how they're fighting sin and growing in the Lord. And then they take that meal over to a family that's just had a new baby and they ask how things are going and they pray for that family together. That's discipleship as well. Or maybe discipleship is happening when one friend calls up another friend and shares with them a concern about how they've been interacting with members of the opposite gender. And they talk about what it means to have upright and morally pure friendships with the opposite sex. Or when friends go to a movie together and get coffee afterwards and talk about the message of the movie and how it compares with the Bible. Do you see in in all those scenarios that I've laid out for you how the Word of God is influencing each situation? It's driving it and it's saturating it. All of these are discipleship situations. And young speaking the truth in love to old or the other way around, it can be spontaneous. And it must become normal in our midst. Ordinary even. To be expected. We want this to be the way of life at Redeemer Church. We want it to be normal. We want it to be the culture of Redeemer. But you know what? Normal and spontaneous don't happen without effort and decision making. So don't just think, well, I hope that happens to me one day. <laughs> I hope just automatically I snap into it. No, it, it might just require a, some intentionality, some decision making, some action on your part. Do you need to decide to be the one at lunch to change the subject to something gospel related? Do you you need to screw up your courage and go find that person that's having a, a rough time in their family or at work and offer to pray for them right here in this room before you leave? Or maybe you need to ask that new Christian if you can get together with them and read a book like What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. Taking some of these steps, for many of you, it might feel awkward and it might feel risky. You might embarrass yourself, but it's worth the risk. You may even be doing something that goes against the way that things work in your culture of origin. Make the decision. Take the risk. Set aside maybe your country's culture and take steps of living in biblical culture. Another thing that we see in this text regarding the way that we grow is that we grow together. We grow together. Our growth is corporate. Did you notice that throughout this passage? Every part of the body is necessary for the whole body to grow up. Paul isn't really saying anything here about individual growth. It's all about the whole body. Each part or member works, but the whole body grows together. So, in a sense, it's, it's, it's necessary, one, for the other to grow. George Matthew, for example, doing the work of ministry in part is necessary for my growth. 
Or Kelly Cameo, working properly in the body of Christ is necessary for Holly Hoskins to grow. Or Alan Formoso, speaking the truth in love is necessary for the growth of Gloria Furman, in a sense. We don't do ministry among one another just for the growth or fulfillment of that individual or soul person. No, no. We do ministry among one another to see the whole church built up. Some of you have been coming to Redeemer Church now for months, even years. And you've not come through the membership class. Now, I know we talk about membership a lot from the front. I want to talk about it one more time. Covenanting together in membership is a way that we say to one another publicly, hey, look, I'm committing to help you grow spiritually by committing to this group of Christians at Redeemer. That's what you're saying when you become a member. You may say, well, I've been coming along and I'm committed to this church. But we don't know that. We don't know that you're committed to us. We want to know about that. And we want to commit to you as well. And another reason that membership contributes to the way we grow is that membership helps us clarify where we are spiritually. Whether we're actually Christians or not, even. You know, many people want to independently independently declare where they are spiritually. It's so easy, though, to fool yourself, or for me to fool myself for that matter. You believe, and I believe, oftentimes what we want to believe about ourselves. But by entering into a formal membership process, the church humbly confirms or denies whether your confession of Christ and the gospel seems credible. And you know what? Many, many of the people who have come through the membership class, there have been questions about whether or not they're truly born again. But you know what we do? We study the scriptures together. We go over the gospel. And many of those people have come to faith. It's amazing. It's amazing. There's a new round of membership classes that's beginning on November 2nd. And I want to encourage you, covenanting with us will enable us all to grow up into Christ. Well, the last teaching from this passage that we'll explore this morning is the goal of our growth. The goal of our growth. Let me ask you a question. What does it look like to be spiritually mature? What do you think it looks like? What do you think of when you hear that term, oh, he or she is spiritually mature? You might think of spiritual maturity as someone who knows a lot about the Bible. Maybe they've even memorized a lot of it. Or maybe someone who knows a lot of Christian Christian words. Or maybe they get up early to pray every day. Or maybe they sleep with Wayne Grudem's systematic theology under their pillow. That's bad for your neck, by the way. It's a big book. You might think of spiritual maturity as being maybe, you know, a little stuffy. You might say to yourself, well, you know, I want to live a little before I become spiritually mature. Listen, the goal of our growth is spiritual maturity together in Christ. And you and I should do everything in our power to get it. 
Paul begins to describe spiritual maturity in Christ with four overlapping and vivid phrases early in this passage. And it's almost as if the goal of growth is so wonderful that he, he can't really describe it well with a quick turn of phrase. You know, it's like he needs to be repetitive. He needs these overlapping metaphors to paint the most beautiful picture of spiritual maturity that he can. He says in verse 13 that the church is built up until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, unity of the faith here isn't simply just unity. It's not being together in the same room without disagreeing. Okay? It's a common mistake and desire that everyone who calls themselves a Christian or every gathering that calls themselves a church, for that matter, would be unified uh, by being in one place together sometime. And if we don't do that, then we're not unified. Or some people say that this so-called unity requires that we should never speak a word of criticism or refuse to participate in ministry with a group that claims Christ as Lord. But cert- and certainly we need to be charitable with others. We need to be kind and loving. But Paul nowhere, nowhere suggests that we should compromise those doctrines that we hold as being most foundational. No, Paul himself spoke strongly against those who called themselves Christians but distorted the the true gospel of grace. No, the unity described here is one based on the one faith that Paul refers to in verse 5. If you have your Bible, you can read up there. He's talking about one Lord, one baptism, one faith. And so it's a unity that's rooted in faith in the gospel and in an ever-growing knowledge of Jesus as the Son of God. The work of ministry that we do with one another, speaking the truth in love, discipleship, builds our faith. It enlarges it and gives us a more complete knowledge of Jesus. When we experience ministry from one another, we know better what Jesus is like. When when we remind each other of gospel truths in the most difficult and painful times in our lives, those truths, truths will seem bigger and more precious to us. Paul continues by saying that we will attain to mature manhood. And here he's painting an image of the whole church as an adult man, grown and stable, mature and responsible. In chapter 2, verse 15, Paul has explained how God has created one new man. Channel read from that this morning in between two of our songs that we sang. One new man because he's taken Jews and he's taken Gentiles and he's put them together in one new man. And the, the last phrase caps off these images of spiritual maturity. He says, we attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And it's as if he can barely figure out how to say that there's a, a completeness and a, a fullness in Christ that spiritual maturity will bring. All these descriptions paint a picture of wholeness, completion, fullness, and stability. When you're trying to describe something that's difficult to define fully, you know, oftentimes what we do is we we tell people what it's not. (laughs) 
And that is exactly what Paul does here. He, he begins then to talk about what spiritual immaturity looks like and what it results in. So whereas spiritual maturity can be described as mature manhood, spiritual immaturity can be described as being like a child. Immature. And more than that, more than just the stature of a child, it's the vulnerable nature of, a, of children that Paul draws our attention to. They're small and they're weak. And they can be pushed around with little effort like waves in the sea or carried about like leaves or feathers on every twist of the wind. I don't know if you've been down to the beach and you watch, particularly on a Friday afternoon perhaps when there's a big crowd down there at the beach here in Dubai or Sharjah, and we're watching, you're watching children play on the beach. It's really fun, of course. They're, they're discovering and they're exploring. They might be eating sand. Um, but you know what? The same wave that crashes in and breaks around the sturdy legs of an adult can send a child tumbling and sputtering. So spiritual maturity leaves us vulnerable to bad teaching. Or wind of doctrine, as Paul puts it here. And he goes further to assign evil intent to those who would spread such falsehoods. He says, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So spiritual immaturity leaves us vulnerable to doctrine and teaching that does a number of things. It minimizes the supremacy of Christ. It justifies our sinful desires. And it papers over the suffering of the cross and the need for us to take up our own cross to follow Jesus. That's what bad doctrine and teaching does. Christ has given us His church the gifts and the grace to grow up in Him. Let's set out to get spiritual maturity together. Let's make that our goal in Christ. As I look over this passage, I see a number of things that make spiritual maturity so, so desirable, so satisfying. I see that it's, it's rooted in truth. God's truth. And in a world of lies and falsehood, God's truth and the gospel and His word are the only thing that won't fail us. God tells us the truth. And if we grow into spiritual maturity, we'll be people of truth. And I see that spiritual maturity is full of love in this passage. The more spiritually mature, the more truly loving we will be. The maturing church builds itself up in love, in fact. It says at the very end, in verse 16, and if we, if we grow in spiritual maturity, we'll be people of godly love. And I see that spiritual maturity looks like Christ and makes much of Christ. It's Christ that we're growing up into. It's Christ who is the head of our church, His body. He's the one who's given us the grace and the gifts, and He's the one that we will be with forever. If we grow in spiritual maturity, we'll be people of Christ, becoming more and more like Him, displaying Him more and more clearly to each other and to the world. Before we close, 
I want to say a word to any of you who are not Christians, who are here this morning. I, I'm so glad that you're here. We are always glad for people to come and investigate Christianity in our midst. I pray that, that God has made some or all of this passage in the Bible understandable to you. And, and, and really even more than that, I would pray that God has made this desirable to you. You know, at the very beginning of these verses, Paul calls all Christians by a name that's it's pretty familiar to people, even outside the church. He calls them saints. You may have picked up on that word. Saints can be kind of a, a bit of a confusing word. Saints are usually thought of as morally perfect in some way. Well, uh, you won't have to spend much time with us here to know that we are not morally perfect. But Paul calls us saints here, not because of what we were or even our experience now. He calls us saints because of what Christ has done for us. I would tell you that. It's changed us permanently. He views us as perfected even though, even as he strengthens us in our fight against sin every day. He changed us permanently because When he died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he took the punishment that we deserved so that we could receive his moral perfection as a gift. Each of us has received that from him. And and when we recognized our helplessness in the midst of our sin, and we turned to him in faith. If you too turn to him in faith, you will be joined together with us to Christ who is our head. Pray with me. Lord, we praise you and thank you that you've redeemed us. You've called us your bride, the church. You've given us the gifts of teachers and shepherds, prophets and evangelists. You've equipped us for ministry through them, Lord, and we want to grow up in spiritual maturity. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be built up in love and in truth. Cause us, Lord, to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.